You're listening to Radio DePaul. I'm Connor Mudd, and this is Tom Talks. Hello, and welcome to Tom Talks, the talk show where we totally talk Tom Cruise. Today is my Eyes Wide Shut episode, and with me today is a very special guest. He can eat an entire lemon in less than 60 seconds. He's a film miner at a school with a pretty mediocre film department, and he went to Cracker Barrel for the first time this year and is never going back. Welcome to my show, Liam Tilton. How's it going? I'm glad to be here. It, you know, it's it's going good. The, the stay-at-home order is in effect next week for Chicago, so I'm getting ready for the long haul. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been stocking up on, um, cup noodles. I've found curry's my new favorite flavor. Ooh. I, I don't know if I've tried the curry one. It sounds bad. It sounds just awful. I saw it in the store and I only bought it out of just like this grim curiosity, but it might be their best. Okay. I, I yeah. definitely, I stick to the, the little, like the cubes of chicken ramen and then I put uh, jalapenos mm. or if I've just bought Papa John's, I put a sliced up pepperoncino pepper in my ramen. That's, I always throw that away or I make somebody else eat it on a dare, but I, that's, that's always like the first thing to go in my Papa John's order. <laughs> Just throw it out. I, I yeah. finally, I was glad to find a use for it. Cause I was like, I feel like I'm wasting food by throwing away this tiny little pepper, which I shouldn't feel like I'm wasting food, but you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so you're, you're actually, you're the third person named Liam to be a guest on my show. I want to know what makes you better than them. Um, well, give me a rundown of the other two Liams. Give me like a short synopsis. Uh, they're they're both in the same fraternity. Um, one of them is a PR major. The other one has founded two nonprofits and a company that taxis yachts. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I'm not better than having funded uh, or started two nonprofits, but um, I'm learning to play the guitar. So that that's a that's a good sales point. And you already listed my, my greatest skill is being able to eat a lemon in under 60 seconds. That is, that is wildly impressive. I think it's, it was, it was quite painful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, so you're at Marquette still, right? Or have you left Marquette? No, I'm at Marquette. I plan to graduate this spring. Nice. And you're minoring in film, majoring in? I'm doubling in business economics and finance, which are just as fun as they sound. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's exciting you're because your yeah. dad's a banker are you looking to go into money and banking or pave your own route as a financial analyst more looking into going into consulting but you know that's more just aversion to following my father true i yeah your father still is one of the top three most interesting people i've ever met uh just because of his propensity to just be like an unforgiving badass you know yeah. <laughs> he told me that um just this past month, he lets our, our dog run along the along this golf course near our house. And this past month, he said that the, our dog Tucker almost got one. Like he almost succeeded in getting a goose. And my dad's only thought was, crap, I'm going to have to kill this goose. <laughs> he was ready. I can picture I can picture him like taking out a knife on a golf course to. to oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I, I've, you know, been stalking your social media again to try and catch up on your life. I saw you're dating a punk rock girl. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's a she's a musician. She's got punk rock hair. She's uh she's cooler than me. 
So I feel like I can leverage that into becoming a cooler person myself. Always good. She's, yeah, she's my neighbor, which is how I met someone during COVID. She just like screamed into our window and I was like, all right, yeah. Oh, what, what have you been, like what have been uh, your COVID pastimes? Uh, meeting women, of course, and then. Meeting women, yeah, meeting punk rockers. Um, a lot of watching movies. We, Me and my roommates will watch a movie about every week. Learning guitar, just doing nothing, just consuming content. I've not been... <laughs> I've not been doing anything vaguely productive. I, I definitely feel that. What's been your, your go-to quarantine movie or your favorite quarantine movie, I should say? Favorite quarantine movie is probably um, 1977's, uh, I damned if I remember the director, but it's a film called House. Huh, it's, I don't um, heard of that one. It's this insane freaking movie <laughs> where um, like these Japanese schoolgirls go to a house and are like tortured by the ghost of a widow and everything's like it's as if a child were describing their nightmare to you it it starts off like a live action anime and ends like a live action horror it's it's crazy wow that's yeah that sounds awesome where did you find that um it's on the criterion collection which is the criterion or their channel they have a streaming service now which has just like been a gold mine Oh, that is that that has been something that I've wanted to look into. I got really into IMDb's streaming service for a minute. It's oh, they have one. It's kind of bad, but yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> it like for a while it only had La La Land, um, like that was the, the only movie, <laughs> and now it's got more. But like it's it's all that it's same like La La Land there. and Moonlight or something, <laughs> right? Yeah, they're like eh, you can pick. Yeah, yeah, and you're I I would call you a, a Stanley Kubrick fan. Oh, definitely. He was, you know, he was my first, he was the first director that I actually got into. Like the first time I was like, I like this director and it was Stanley Kubrick. And that was in middle school. So I've, I've been watching Stanley Kubrick for a long time. Yeah. I remember you, you're the one who showed me Clockwork Orange. I remember you oh, yeah. watching it in my basement in the dark. And I was like, this is weird. I am yeah. 12. <laughs> yeah, this is weird. I am 12. <laughs> Yeah, my um my older brother took a film history class or something in high school, and that was the first time I like got into seeing a Kubrick movie, and got into seeing like actual art house movies. He was like, because he had to watch movies for his assignments. And one night he came home with uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, and I was like, "What is this?" And he just said, "Shut up and watch it." <laughs> just blew my mind. <laughs> and you've seen all all thirteen of Kubrick's then, I, I assume. Um, I've not seen Lolita. And there's one more I haven't seen, uh, Fear and Desire, but I've seen most Kubrick films. What would you say your favorite is? Probably. Um, the one I keep going back to is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I, I saw that one with you too. That was, Yeah. <laughs> that one That one hurts sometimes to because I, I, having rewatched it, I'm like, I still, I don't know if I understand it. I don't know if I ever will, <laughs> but it makes me happy to watch. Yeah, back home in Denver, I got the chance to see that on a 70 millimeter print. And that was just like, even just the chance to see it in theaters was cool. But seeing it on the film print, I was, it's a miracle. I didn't crap my pants in the theater just watching that. Yeah, I definitely, I miss going to theaters. Have you, are theaters open in Milwaukee or not there? No, not really. Um, there's one theater that's open with um, pretty you know good thing it's pretty strict social distancing rules so it's a little bit difficult to get tickets but i did go see a movie the weekend before halloween they were showing psycho so i went and saw that with my girlfriend Ooh, i actually i watched that on halloween 
Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, I had never seen it. I was like, oh, this, this is pretty good. Reminded me a lot of American Psycho, which I should have seen after I saw Psycho, and then American yeah. Psycho would have reminded me of Psycho. Right. <laughs> well, you know, this is Tom Talks, so we should probably talk a little bit of Tom. So, how how familiar would you say you are with Tom Cruise's filmography? Oh, you know, he's become such. Um... He's been so like if you if you talk about star culture, you 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 separate an actor from their actual ability to act and they just become a celebrity. I think Tom Cruise has reached that point to where like if Tom Cruise is in a movie, I don't even notice just because it's it's big it's be it's become he's he's the essence of the movie. So I've seen probably five or six Tom Cruise movies, but like I couldn't name them. <laughs> this <laughs> They do all blend together at times, for yeah. sure. Having seen all 43 of them, I can completely agree oh that I, I, you know, sometimes I'm like, Tom Cruise movies. it's too many. Did you hear that he is um, re- reportedly filming a movie on the International Space Station sometime soon? Good God. <laughs> that is, that's a, that's a level of influence and leverage that no human being should have access to. <laughs> He, I don't even, I'm hoping it's a Mission Impossible movie. I'm hoping it's a movie oh, that yeah. the series has grossed enough that it's just like an insane stunt. I hope it's not like a movie about astronauts because that would make me sad if, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> if it was just like a, a very factual, realistic drama about astronauts. <laughs> right, he definitely, he does very few <laughs> factual, realistic drama. Like this yeah. is probably his, one of his most dramatic roles. It's one of his most critically acclaimed in Eyes Wide Shut. What do you think your, yeah. your favorite Tom Cruise movie would be? Oh, certainly this, certainly Eyes Wide Shut, just that, you know, by the nature of me liking Kubrick movies and this being by far his you know, subtlest movie. Yeah, I I definitely I put it up there with like I think his performance in Magnolia while good is too over the top and his performance in The Outsiders is like nothing. Basically I've nothing. not seen Magnolia. Is that Paul Thomas Anderson? It is. It, you know, looking back, it's worse than I thought it was. Uh <laughs> I I've now seen it twice. The first time I saw it, I was like, this was pretty weird, but pretty good. I could get behind right. it. Yeah. The second time I watched it, I was like, oh, that's racist. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, I can I can forgive it for some things, but it's so it's very racist. It's it's pretty sexist. Um, it's still because uh, I have a whole ranking system and whatnot. It scores about average in the scheme of Tom Cruise movies. It's rocking a cool 62 out of 100 on that score (laughs) yeah it's that fine tube it's that (laughs) it's uh, honestly i put too much effort into my scoring system (laughs) and not enough into any other part of this podcast you feed data into like a sentiment analysis that goes through an algorithm through code and it spits out a 62 yeah pretty much (laughs) the next two questions are questions that i ask every guest the first being what is the most Tom Cruise thing that you have ever done? Most Tom Cruise thing I've ever done. So when I think about Tom Cruise, I think about mainly his action films. So I think about the, you know, he does his own stunts and stuff like that. So um, 
probably one of the many times I've had a just a massive wipeout skiing and just almost dying. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like that's the level of danger that he takes on to do any any action role. That's probably the most dangerous thing I've done. Oh yeah, and and ski chases are quintessential in action films too. That oh, that, absolutely, that's perfect. I'm I. As a follow-up project to Tom Talks, I'm watching every James Bond movie and the amount of ski chases I've had to see. Yeah. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But the the second question that I ask every single guest is hardly, it's more of a a direction. Uh, I'm going to give you one minute to say anything you ever could have possibly wanted to say to Tom Cruise. In the event that Tom Cruise ever listens to this podcast, I'm going to supercut these minutes together so he has just one long message from fans, admirers, or people who don't really care about him. So your minute, do you want to do you want a second to prepare or you do you think you're ready? No, I've got it. I know exactly right. what I'd say to him. Your minute starts now. All right. L- listen here, Tommy boy. I've j- I've got one question for you. One question at all. Is it the money? Is it the fame? Is it the influence? Or are you actually a Scientologist? Like, I'm so confused as to whether or not you're faking that or whether or not, like, you're being paid to support Scientology. Also, you know, I'm asking you this, but for this question on to John Travolta, I'm, I'm confused and upset about your association with Scientology. I, I, need, I need that answer. Oh, you would you would probably not be surprised at how many people bring up his Scientology in the, their minute. It's the it's, it's number one. Almost the most shocking thing about him that, and the fact that his teeth aren't centered. True, and the fact that he left Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> nobody I forget about that. Why? Like why on earth? And he did end up with Penelope Cruz like very shortly after, which you know, yeah. Um, but Nicole Kidman. <laughs> yeah, Nicole Kidman. There, there's actually, there's reports of, um, like, in the middle of shooting Eyes Wide Shut, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise would just go for, like, midnight go-kart races where they'd go rent out a go-kart location at 3 a.m. and just race each other. And if that's not the most Tom Cruise thing, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. That's what that's what power couples do. That's what super couples strive to do is they have enough power and influence to rent out go-kart places in the middle of the night. <laughs> right, just because. And of course they met on um, the set of a racing movie, so it makes a ton of sense. But I, I think of the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman trilogy, Eyes Wide Shut is inarguably the best of the three, I think. Yeah. I'd say, you know, based on what I've seen, it's probably his best acting effort. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember if Tom was nominated for an Oscar for this one, but it is it is one of his more critically acclaimed roles. Yeah. We we have Google. We can look this I know. Up. I'm on my phone. I've got I've got you are like plastered against the background of my computer because you're on my phone. So I've got access to the entire internet right now if I can actually find my keyboard. Yeah, let me see. He's been nominated for three Oscars. I believe the three he was nominated for were Magnolia, uh, Rain Man, and maybe Jerry Maguire. Let's see. Let's see if my guesses are correct. Magnolia, Jerry Maguire, and Born on the Fourth of July, not Rain Man. Born on the Fourth of July got nominated? Yeah, yeah. He got nominated for uh, playing Ron Kovich. I like to describe that movie as uh, worse Forrest Gump. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the those are the Tom Cruise questions. Um, 
what we're going to do now, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. And then after this commercial break, we're going to play a game that I like to call Kubrick Rubric after this. Biking in Chicago is more than just a mode of transportation. It's a lifestyle. It's convenient, affordable, and with 13,000 bike racks, parking is never a problem. But with every reward comes a sidecar of risk. In Chicago, over 1,700 cyclists a year are killed or injured in bike accidents involving motor vehicles. Bike safety is simple. First, become familiar with Chicago bike laws. Know your hand signals and when to use them. Love your brain. Get a bike helmet that fits your noggin. And deck it out with a headlamp and some reflective gear for riding at night. Bike at least three to four feet away from parked cars to avoid being struck by a car door being opened. Motorists can do their part, too, by checking their side view mirrors for bike traffic before exiting their vehicle. Most importantly, remember that we're sharing the road. Looking out for both ourselves and each other is the only way to keep Chicago's roads safe, no matter what your wheels look like. For more information on bike safety in Chicago, visit www.chicagobikes.org. This public service announcement was brought to you by Radio DePaul, Chicago's college connection. You're listening to Radio DePaul. Best Station in the Nation 2020. Hello, you're listening to Radio DePaul. I'm Connor Mudd. This is Tom Talks. I'm here with Liam Tilton, and we are about to play Kubrick Rubric. Uh, Kubrick Rubric is hardly a game, I, I will say. Uh, it's more of a <laughs> it's more of a guided, playful discussion. Uh, just because I'm running out of game formats for this show. <laughs> And I can only do um, like over under so many times. <laughs> so I've decided uh, for the sake of talking, we're going to have more of a talking game. This is a game talking about conspiracy theories. Oh, I have, I, there are two questions that I want to ask. I want to ask you, Liam, how likely the conspiracy is to be true. And then if it were true, whether you think it could be true or not, how did Stanley Kubrick play a role in making it happen? You can figure out the most convoluted way that Stanley Kubrick could have possibly made this happen. But we'll we'll get started with All right. Area 51 hiding aliens. How likely is that conspiracy to be true in your eyes? All right. I'm going to give these based on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being um, certain that he did it, 0 being he has a valid alibi. Area 51 is in the 3-4 range. Okay. And I'm going to say... <laughs> Kubrick was sort of uh, people who study Kubrick have noted that he he his he's a, he was he's very clearly a genius. So he's got a lot of focus on puzzles and intricate details that need to be unlocked cognitively. He was a chess master. So I'm going to say Kubrick applied this genius into hiding clues about the Roswell landing in roswell so like the whole town of roswell is, is sort of this i spy where if you solve all the clues it leads to like kubrick's like script about like a, a non-fiction script about area 51 <laughs> it's just the biography of yeah. uh, like the area 51 yeah. <laughs> story that's you know that's too good <laughs> i have you ever been to roswell i've never been actually i've never been i've always wanted to go I've been to the UFO watchtower over by the sand dunes, though, and that, that's quite the spot. <laughs> it's so good. I've bought about 10 uh, plastic aliens from those people. Every time I go, I get another yeah. one. 
You gotta keep them in business. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. What about the existence of cryptids? How likely are crypt like like Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, Mothman, and the like? How likely are they? And then how did Kubrick play a role? Uh, we're going back down to like a two on the cryptid front. But if if Kubrick does have a role in sort of the the cover up of the existence of cryptids. I'm going to assume that the cryptid in question is Chupacabra. So I, I think my, my theoretical scenario is Kubrick, before he died, obviously, and now, now his, his kin and his, his friends and family are, are uh, alternately filling this role for him. But while he was alive, he would go down to Mexico, normally he'd fly into Mexico City and you know, rent a car under a pseudonym. He was very secretive about his public image. And he'd he'd take he'd take a, a like a, a flatbed pickup truck, a shotgun, as much ammo as he could carry, and he'd go into the northern Mexico desert and hunt chupacabra down, so that he could protect goat farmers. Like this is his vendetta, is against chupacabra, and he he wants to protect the world from it. <laughs> You've described this so vividly and have presented yourself as such a Kubrick like expert <laughs> that you're making me believe this. Yeah. <laughs> it could be true it could be true it very well could I'm, be true i wouldn't know it's not a zero it's not a zero <laughs> yeah anything above a zero is true um okay um uh the birds working for the bourgeoisie birds uh were what, what is it killed in 1976 by ronald reagan and replaced with spies that's the conspiracy theory um i'm giving this a solid six I think it's more likely than the other two. Um, and I think that Kubrick is actively working for the resistance. And so if, if, you, if you watch uh, evidence of like, I can't name a Kubrick movie with a bird in it. Like I can't, I can't imagine a Kubrick shot of a bird. I'm sure they're there. I just can't imagine it. And that's because I think potentially there are no birds in Kubrick movies. And that, that's his, his form of realism, trying to say, hey, birds aren't real. And I, I'm, part of, I'm part of the outreach to try and get people to believe that this is true. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes total sense. I definitely, especially in my urban ecology course, uh, we've been studying migration patterns. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Nope. That's, that doesn't make any sense. That, sounds like robot work to me. Right? Oh. <laughs> migration patterns or machine learning <laughs> oh it sounds like a malcolm gladwell book um all right uh 9-11 was an inside job one one or zero <laughs> um kubrick died in 99 right i think he was dead when 9-11 occurred um if he did have a part in it and i assume this is i don't want to skip ahead if kubrick does have ties to the government it started when he filmed the moon landing so maybe after doing that project for the government, they were like, we need to help. You need, we need your help orchestrating um, another plot. So whereas he shot the moon landing, he wrote 9-11. You know, a multifaceted man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> man of many heads. Uh, <laughs> In like looking up conspiracy theories, there's one that I found that, well, I mean, I know that it's impossible. It's a zero on the Kubrick rubric, um, but 
there's a conspiracy theory that Barack Obama had the author Tom Clancy poisoned because Tom Clancy knew that 9-11 was an inside job. Isn't Tom Clancy still alive? No, 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 he's dead. <laughs> okay, okay. I was like... Tom Clancy died. Like, but um, the, <laughs> the report is that um, apparently in order to make his books more accurate, he was in constant contact with the CIA and reportedly right. he learned too much and then <laughs> Obama specifically had him killed. It um, came from the top, the very top. Very top. <laughs> uh, we can't have Tom Clancy anymore. It, it's not like the head of the Pentagon. It's Barack Hussein Obama yep. <laughs> made this decision. Um, so yeah, that that made me chuckle today. Uh, yeah. that, that was even something that people cared about. Okay, what about um, Elvis, Tupac, and Michael Jackson are all alive? seven um there's theories that kubrick did not die he just wanted to leave the public image so if, if that's true and he, he's part of this cohort of celebrities that have faked their own deaths um i assume he has a major part of that yeah that that feels like one yeah. of the one of the higher ones what about avril lavigne being replaced with a lizard clone of herself <laughs> this one's this one's a bit new to me oh you haven't um, heard avril lavigne in like i think 2007 was replaced with a lizard clone of herself that's why I'm her recent music one. isn't any good <laughs> that's fine. this is a theory made by desperate avril lavigne fans just scrambling for an explanation um i'm giving this one another like a three uh i don't think kubrick like he was a very well read man but i don't think he had much insight into cloning technology or the and uh, if he's actively resisting the bourgeoisie it's the birds it's it's not this this other illuminati lizard garbage i mean the man can only fight on one front right you gotta pick lizards or birds you gotta pick <laughs> okay i think i think we've got two more DIA is a secret Illuminati Nazi base. Okay. Um, I've heard the Illuminati, uh, the Illuminati part of that theory. I didn't know the Nazis were involved, but, you know, that's just par for the course as far as that theory goes. Five. 50-50 on this one, whether or not he's involved. Um, again, he doesn't, like, with the lizard thing, he's, he's not a cloning expert, but... So one of the things about The Shining is that if you pay attention to the set design... They, they purposely uh, put together shots and uh, sequences that don't make sense. So there's contradictory um, information about what the hotel actually looks like from the inside. That there's a scene where Danny's on his tricycle and he's on the first floor and he rounds a corner and he rounds another corner. And then all of a sudden he's on the second floor without ever you know going up or down a flight of stairs. So I feel like if Kubrick is able to convey this through film, maybe there's some architectural ability to craft a maze. So if Kubrick did have a role, he's the one who designed the catacombs beneath DIA. I, I could see that. And the reason that the, the Nazi base thing comes in is because DIA's footprint is in the shape of a swastika. It is. It is. Forget about that. It just so happens that that is the most efficient shape to lay out an airport yeah. because of landing strips. But also it could be... Nazi Illuminati. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I yeah, I love. Uh, I haven't been back. Have you seen the Talking Gargoyle yet? No. 
There's a there's a talking gargoyle. Yeah, in DIA, they've um, they've programmed a mechanical gargoyle to like shout at people. That's terrifying. It's, it's so terrifying. <laughs> like I imagine someone who's already scared to fly, and it's their first flight. And just immediately off the bat, there's like animatronics and stuff barking at them. That's that's terrifying. Okay, the, our our final conspiracy theory, and you telegraphed it for sure. Uh, the moon landing is faked. Nine out of ten. I I've seen evidence that that um, Kubrick has hinted to his uh, involvement with the moon landing being faked. There's that there's the moon is all over The Shining if you know where to look. I'm going to give that a really solid nine. If, if you look, you can see set lines on most of the moon photography. He was, he, he was probably the most prominent and meticulous director at the time. So he would have been, he would have been the first choice if NASA and the CIA were to reach out to someone who had meticulous and specific film experience. Maybe a 10, maybe a 10. I'm going <laughs> to give it a nine for like posterity, but... It might be a ten. <laughs> it could, yeah, it could very, well be very a 10. could easily be a ten. Uh-huh. I, I think my favorite theory surrounding it is that he did fake the moon landing, but he's so meticulous about his shots, and he wanted to be so real that he just sent them to the moon and filmed there. <laughs> like he just filmed on location. <laughs> yeah, he wanted he wanted a bunch of takes on the moon. <laughs> yeah, just I want want to cover his bases. He'll he'll do the the stuff like in yeah. the studio for practice and for rehearsals but <laughs> you can't he fake the you fake the moon landing but it's all practical effects it's all it's all real <laughs> right it's tom cruise style he did his own stunts uh all right well i i know it's busy it's like finals or midterms we i don't know what it is i know you, you said you were busy so i don't want to take up too much more of your time uh, yeah i've got some just absolutely evil econ homework to finish up oh i i feel that but uh, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, very happy to have you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Radio DePaul. I'm Connor Mudd and this is Tom Talks. Uh, you just listened to Baby Did a Bad Bad Thing by Chris Isaac, uh, which is featured in the film Eyes Wide Shut during one of Nicole Kidman's scenes. With me now, actually, is my sister, uh, Tori Mudd who I've brought on to kind of keep me in check. Eyes Wide Shut is is pretty racy. It's pretty raunchy, pretty not not uh, good for radio, especially on Catholic radio waves. So in order to keep me from saying anything too risque is my sister. So Tori, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. I'm asexual, aromantic, and very uncomfortable with the energy we've created in the studio today, but I'm here to support my brother. Woo! It's it's going to be interesting. We're going to start with synopsis and then go to fast facts and then go to fun facts and then some data. Um, and we're going to be a little uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah, I just need listeners at home to know I feel nothing but fear reasonable for for this stanley kubrick uh final film it's rough stanley kubrick's early films are are rough i know but like at least rougher at least if like his last film was just like space and i'd be like oh wow what a majestic man but no it's just this absolute mess that i know nothing about except for that tom cruise is in it and you mentioned nicole kidman before you said tom cruise's name so 
already having a good time. That's true. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. This is the third film in the Kidman Cruise trilogy and the final film in the Kidman Cruise trilogy. You get divorced um, like right after this? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it's rough. Nice. We'll talk about that in the fast facts. Okay, Let's, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with a synopsis. Uh, this movie follows doctors Bill and Alice Harford, both doctors, living Love in New that. York with their daughter Helena. Uh, and they attend a Christmas party hosted by the, uh, one of their wealthy patients, Victor Ziegler. And Bill at the party is reunited with a man by the name of Nick Nightingale, really intense names here, who is a medical school dropout who plays the piano professionally. At this point, an older Hungarian attempts to seduce Alice, Bill's wife, uh, and two young models attempt to seduce Bill. We're ah. five minutes into the movie. <laughs> uh, How old is their daughter? I must know. Um, she's about six or seven, I believe, at the time. So, okay. yeah, you know, like old enough to go to school. You know, she's not like a baby, mm-hmm. um, but, she, you know, still still fairly young. At the party, Bill is interrupted by the host of the party who um, was uh, canoodling with a, a young woman in the back room who has uh, since since the canoodling overdosed on speedball uh <laughs> confident i know what drug speedball is i don't know what drug speedball um and, and you know radio DePaul doesn't endorse the use of speedball whatever it may be whatever it may be um i am a public health person i feel quite familiar in like the opioid crisis i want to say it's coke uncertain right in <laughs> Write in to Tom Talk's email, which may or may not exist, what speedball is. I'd love to know. Please do not email me with any information on speedball. It is a school email. Um, uh, anyways. So she's just dead or is she just like, oh dear? No, no. She recovers. Uh, Dr. Ah. Bill Dr. Bill helps. Um, oh. Yeah. The following evening. So after the party's over the next evening, uh, Alice and Bill are... are are smoking marijuana and Radio DePaul does not condone the smoking of marijuana either. Uh, and Alice and Bill are, are discussing um, their, their different, uh, the synopsis describes it as episodes of unfulfilled temptation. Ew. Uh, yeah. So they're talking about flirting with people at a Christmas party. So, okay. Neither of them hooked up at this first Christmas party. Neither of them did. And Absolutely Bill driving. tells Alice that he's not jealous of the other man's attraction to her because he deems women uh, naturally inclined to fidelity, uh, which feels shady. Uh, she then discloses. Yeah. She then discloses that during their vacation uh, to vac to Cape Cod, she encountered a naval officer and fantasized about him enough to consider leaving Bill and their daughter. Uh, Bill is disturbed by Alice's revelation uh, before being called out of the house. Um, He's called by a patient who has just died and the patient's distraught daughter, Marion, unsuccessfully tries to seduce Bill. So now Bill is, uh, three people have tried to seduce Bill. One has tried, or two have tried to seduce Alice because I believe there's a flashback sequence there. Um, and Bill goes to the distraught daughter's house, gets seduced. And then upon leaving, he um, meets a, a sex worker named Domino. Uh, Honestly, already my favorite character. Yeah, truly. And then right when they start uh, to, you know, do the hanky-panky, Alice calls him and it prompts Bill to have a change of heart. So he stops doing the hanky-panky with Domino, but he pays her anyways 
What uh, a gentleman. Right, what My a gentleman. God, we stand. Right? And then he goes to a jazz club and meets Nick Nightingale, who we met in the first scene. Nick the, describes an engagement uh, that he's going to go work later in the evening where he has to play piano blindfolded um, in an event featuring many beautiful women. Invitees, I feel nothing but fear. I know nothing about Eyes Wide Shut except for what I think is about to happen. Uh-huh. Yep. Listeners at home, I, I'm going to yak. <laughs> Invitees are required to wear a costume uh, and a mask and they need a password. So Bill goes to a costume shop in the middle of the night um, and offers the owner, whose name is Millich, a generous amount of money to rent a costume. Inside the shop, Millage rent. Is, I'm sorry, rent. Rent a costume. Yes, <laughs> that's upsetting. That's so much more upsetting than anything else that's about to follow. Please right. go on. <laughs> um, inside the shop, Millage is outraged when he catches his young daughter with two men. So, so, so far, <laughs> there's so many sexual what? encounters in this movie. Wait, that's whose right. daughter is this? I've lost track. Millage's daughter, the costume shop owner's daughter. Ah, yeah. So then, Bill <laughs> takes a taxi to the country mansion. Um, which was mentioned by Nick Nightingale that Nick Nightingale's playing the piano at. He gives a password um, and discovers what the synopsis describes as a sexual ritual. I don't, I, I'm not going to describe it any further than that. Um, I don't want to know any more than that. <laughs> a, woman wearing, a woman wearing a mask, not much else, uh, warns him that he is in terrible danger. Uh, oh. Bill is, is there a, magic? I, is, I, I, didn't, I, I just kind of assumed that this was just like drugs and just like hanky-panky. We're going to need more words for that. Canoodling, I hated. I'm going to... Doinking, we haven't used yet. We'll, we'll use doinking next. Is um, there actual magic in this film? No. I wish oh, there were. Shit. I wish there were. Um, so Bill is ushered into a crowded room and is unmasked by the master of ceremonies. Um, the woman who tried to warn Bill intervenes and insists on redeeming him. Um, at an undisclosed personal cost, Bill is let off with a warning um, and is told not to tell anyone about what happened. So he's let to go leave. Bill gets home, is guilty and confused, and he finds Alice laughing in her deep sleep and he awakens her. She cheerfully explains that, uh, in a dr- that she was having a dream in which she was uh, doinking the naval officer and many other men uh, and laughing at the idea of Bill witnessing the scene. The next morning, Bill goes to Nick's hotel, where Nick Nightingale is. The desk clerk explains that a bruised and frightened Nick Nightingale checked out hours earlier, escorted by two dangerous-looking men. Bill returns to the costume shop, uh, but seems to have misplaced his mask. Um, So in returning his costume, he doesn't have the mask, and he learns that Millich then sold his teenage daughter into prostitution. What? Why? Didn't have to, but it did. Um, so then Bill, you know, in his retracing of his steps, heads to Domino's apartment. Yeah. Um, he's apparently decided to consummate the affair. However, he's greeted by a woman who claims she is Domino's roommate, Sally. And there is uh, sexual tension between Bill and Sally, but Sally reveals that Domino has uh, received that morning the results of a test indicating that she is HIV positive. Oh, see, this is where public health cannot come into play. I now feel a little more familiar with this territory. Yeah. But I don't necessarily trust Stanley Kubrick to handle this with great tact or care. True. Because you know what? You know what the next line in the synopsis is after that? It's just uh, Bill leaves two words. That's it? That's it. Does Sally come back? Sally's gone. Domino's gone. Just that we find out that Domino's HIV positive. Bill leaves. 
That's it. That's it. But he didn't sleep with her, so he doesn't have he doesn't have uh, AIDS. Well, so... he doesn't have HIV. Don't necessarily get. Well, I mean, in today's day and age. Hey, you're everybody, right. do some research on prep. If you're ever at risk for HIV, you should be taking prep. It's a once daily pill uh, that'll reduce your viral count. That's neither here nor there. Thank you but for the I, PSA. I got. We need any sort of useful information. Any levity. <laughs> Yeah, no. Prep no, and pep, everyone. No useful information there. Um, he then sees news about a beauty queen's death from overdose. He goes to the morgue and identifies her as uh, Mandy, who is, I believe, the woman. Yeah, Mandy's the woman who warned him about, uh, like, in in the in the creepy mansion. She's the one who said, you're She's in danger. Dead. The ones I'm trying to keep track of, there's also, like, the daughter of the dead patient, and I'm just trying to keep track of everyone that has either successfully or unsuccessfully seduced Tom Cruise. The number is very high so far, and I can't everyone keep track. is unsuccessful so far. Oh, um, no, yeah. Tom Cruise has not actually slept with anyone this movie. Um, so, so after he identifies the woman, he is summoned by Ziegler, who uh, the, you know the guy from the first scene, who reveals he was a guest at the orgy and identified Bill through his connection with Nick. Ziegler claims that the secret society's warnings are only intended to scare Bill from speaking out. However, he implies that the society is capable of acting on their threats. Bill, Mandy's dead. Right. Bill asks uh, about Nick's disappearance and Mandy's death, uh, correctly identifying her as the, the participant of the orgy who sacrificed herself. Ziegler insists that Nick is safely back home in Seattle, and the punishment was part of some uh, charade of imitation that had nothing to do with Mandy's death. He also says that Mandy uh, was a, a sex worker and an addict who died from an accidental overdose. Bill doesn't know whether Ziegler's telling the truth or not. We kind of assume not. Upon returning home, Bill finds the rented mask on his pillow next to his sleeping wife. He breaks down in tears and tells Alice the whole truth of the past two days. The next morning, they go Christmas shopping with their daughter, who wanders near two older men uh, who had been first seen at Ziegler's party. Uh, unconcerned with their child, Bill apologizes to Alice, um, and Alice muses that they should be uh, grateful that their marriage and mutual love survived. And there's a phenomenal closing line to the film that Nicole Kidman gets to say that I can't say on air. Basically, you're gonna have to like type it in like Morris code or something. <laughs> well, basically, she give it to me with euphemisms. Oh, uh, here's what she says. Here's here's what she says in 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 our speak currently. Nicole Kidman says to Tom Cruise, I want you to doink me, Bill. That's it? And that's how it ends. That's how the movie ends? Yeah. Well, because it's all about, and I've read a lot of scholarly articles on this. It's all Why? about sexual repression. Well, because I thought I, I mean, was bringing a professor. He I'm, doesn't get any. <laughs> I was really expecting a lot worse. I, I feel like you might have cut a lot for my benefit, and I do appreciate that. I cut a lot of the details. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm very, very okay with that. Yeah. There's a lot that happens in this movie. This is this is one of his convoluted ones. He's got a lot of convoluted ones. This is one of the most convoluted of Tom Cruise's. It's up there with Magnolia in its convolutedness. And he was hired for Magnolia while on the set of this movie. Yeah. That's fun. I don't remember which one Magnolia is. You don't. You won't like it. Don't watch it. Okay. Yeah, but we'll go into some fast facts because that's the that's the synopsis. That's what happens. What uh, happens to the daughter? She gets she goes and finds toys. Oh yeah, I feel, I feel like you kind 
I left that hanging. I thought that my kid was going to die. No, that's just how it ends. Huh. Yeah. Well. They're just at a toy shop. Just wait, shopping for toys. Whatever happened with this, the costume keeper's daughter? There's a lot of loose threads. No, no, the costume keeper's daughter was sold into prostitution. But that's it. That's like her whole character arc. Yeah, her it's whole character true. arc is she was discovered sleeping with two men in a costume shop, and then her father sold her into prostitution. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that this movie doesn't necessarily paint sex work in a positive light, but I also wasn't expecting it to. Yeah, no, we, we didn't... We didn't ask Kubrick to write a movie that painted sex work in a positive light. And, and we'll talk about some fun facts. With yeah, let's get too. into some fun facts. Right. Well, we'll start with the fast facts, then the fun facts. we got two facts ah. sections. Um, <laughs> so this movie's directed, of course, by Stanley Kubrick. This is his final film. For people who don't know Stanley Kubrick, he directed 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Shining, Clockwork Orange. Dr. Strangelove was him, I think. Uh, it was also written by Kubrick, as well as uh, Frederick Raphael, who wrote Nothing Else of Significance, um, and is based on a, a, like an early 1900s book by Arthur Schnitzler. He's just an Austrian literature writer. Um, and of course, it took place in, in Germany in, in the book. So Kubrick uh, took a lot of liberties. And yeah, interesting from, from a writer perspective. It's one of many Tom Cruise movies to be based on a book, not a popular book like many of his other films. Uh, the cast, uh, Alice is Nicole Kidman. Uh, we've talked about her already. Their daughter, whose name is Helena, uh, is played by Madison Eggington, who is in both the TV show Angel and the TV show Touched by an Angel and Star Trek Next Generation as Picard's daughter. But she did great as a, as a great. child actress. Yeah, phenomenal as a child actress. Didn't do anything um, after that. Victor Ziegler is played by director Sidney Pollack, who directed Tootsie. He's also in an episode of Frasier uh, and a movie called The Electric Horseman. Who is he in Frasier? He's just in one episode. He has like a cameo. I think he's one of the people who calls on um, Frasier's radio show. Lame. Okay. Nick Nightingale is played by Todd Field, who is in a movie called Little Children and also in Aqua Teen Hunger Force. If you know Aqua Teen Hunger Force, I think it's that cartoon I was about to say anime, so I'm willing to just offend anybody who who enjoys Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yeah, I don't think Aqua Teen Hunger Force is an is an anime at all. Um, you might be on to something, but I'm. You know what? I'm gonna stand by it. You know, it is what it is. Domino is played by Vanessa Shaw, who is in Hocus Pocus. Not Hell a ton yeah, else. she is. Not a ton else other than Hocus Pocus, but you know. That, that works. Milich, the guy, the, the costume shop owner, is played by, oh, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Rade Serbedzija. No, you've got to try harder. <laughs> you you got to do a quick Ra- Google on Rade pronunciation. Put it in the chat. I don't even, look. It's not I'm generally, that important. I'm not great at pronouncing all sorts of names, but I, I can hold my own. But a raid, Serbed Zidja. I have no I was, idea. I was a little too judgmental. All right. Yep. Look. <laughs> Give it. S E R B E D Z I J A. Serbed Zidja. That's That worked. Either way, he's in Batman Begins and oh. The Saint and Mission Impossible 2. Uh, also featured in this movie, people who are either uncredited or are so low down the credit list. Alan Cumming is in this movie. Um, oh, that's a treat. Yeah, he plays a desk clerk. Um, 
I, I, you know, I like him in Son of the Mask and Goldeneye and X-Men and the Smurfs. Oh, Son uh, of the Mask first on your list. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Uh, you know, that's just, that's, I call it like I see it. Um, also, Kate Blanchett was in this, but she's uncredited and is just uh, the voice of someone at some point. Um, I'm assuming in the, the mansion, which we breezed right on over. Yes. That she's just a voice there. Yeah, yeah. She's she's the voice. She might be the voice of the um, of the woman who warns him. I think they got a different voice actress. That has to suck that you just, all right, you actress, you're going to warn Tom Cruise and then you're going to die and we're not even going to use your voice. Yeah. And she's fully nude the whole time she's on screen. Gathered. Including Once again, when I, she's in the morgue. I, oh, God. I really do appreciate the lack of details that I was personally given. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I feel like I, I have seen The Shining, and I feel like through cultural osmosis, I kind of know Clockwork Orange. I just kind of assume that any woman in a Kubrick film is just fully nude. I do not trust that they're being handled with respect. Yeah, that's a that's a reasonable assumption. Anywho, um, R.I.P. Mandy. R.I.P. Mandy. Here, here's some fun facts. I know we didn't talk about the home much, um, in the synopsis, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about the home now. The home that it was filmed at was uh, once the home uh, of an old businessman in the 1800s by the name of Baron Mayer de Rothschild. My goodness. I'm going to share my screen and show you the first image of this man that shows up. The, the image depicts him in uh, riding boots uh, with a red coat, a top hat, and a whip. I don't think... All right, so, okay, Connor has just given an absolutely stellar visual description. I'm going to adjust it slightly. Like, riding boots, like, literally, like, 2008, like, hipster chick, like, (laughs) riding boots. He looks like a ringmaster that got lost. And uh, apparently he owned a very nice house. He owned a mansion that they filmed an orgy in. Um, Yikes. (laughs) Big yike, big yike. So, this movie is one of the longest constant movie shoots of all time. It took 400 days to shoot, um, consecutive days. And the editing process was even longer. It was so long that um, people who had worked with Kubrick before recommended to Tom and Nicole that they like buy an apartment in London so that they could just live there while they filmed. Um, And they lived there so long and spent time in London so long that their kids developed British accents. Now that is funny. That's pretty great. Isn't Nicole Kidman British? She's Australian, I, I mean, think. She's just erudite. Actually. She's just erudite. Okay, here's the problem. I confused Nicole Kidman and Kate Blanchett and Kate Winslet. whoever. Oh, thank you. And I was about to say the one that's in Titanic. To me, they are all synonyms of the same person. And I honestly, is it wins? Okay, so Nicole Kidman is not in Titanic. No. She Nicole Kidman is in Far and Away, which is very similar to Titanic. Moulin Rouge. Yes, Moulin Rouge. That's where you Kate most know Winslet Nicole Kidman. Kate Winslet is different, a different human being. Kate Winslet is just Titanic. I assume she's done other stuff, but I'm going to trust you. Right. Yeah. So this, this, as Stanley Kubrick's final film, he actually died four days after presenting his final cut to Warner Brothers. God. Yeah, he's an old man. Um, Do you think Warner Brothers just like published this out of guilt? I'm like, oh man, Stanley, this is a weird one. You know, well, Stanley thought this was his best movie. <laughs> or at oh. least some reports say he did. 
I don't think anyone agrees with him on that. Stanley, The Shining was so good. Yeah. People and are... arguably the moon landing was his best work. <laughs> here's, here's the funniest thing to me. Here's the funniest thing to me. This movie was originally going to be a comedy. What? Um, would it have been his first, Stanley Kubrick's first comedy? It would have been Stanley, well, I don't know. Dr. Strangelove, I think, is technically a comedy. Full metal jacket. Nothing yep. but laughs. Nothing but laughs the whole time. Um, but it, here, here's a list of people originally considered for Tom Cruise's role with Kubrick having comedy in mind. Jim Carrey. No, no, if only. Woody oh, okay. Allen. Woody Allen is top okay. of the list. Already rough. Steve Martin. <laughs> Harrison Ford. What? What? And Alec Baldwin. Oof. Oh, no. Right? Yeah, Alan, I'm just ignoring. I 100% would watch this film if it was Steve Martin. I would, too. In a world where the men eligible for a role are Tom Cruise or Steve Martin, the idea that those actors could like just be swapped because like Alec Baldwin, sure, yeah. I feel like could replace a Tom Cruise. Especially back in the Alec day. Baldwin in the nineties, of course. Exactly, Alec Harrison Baldwin Ford it. in the nineties. Yeah, right. they don't swap. I don't care. Right. But Steve Martin, good old white hair, Steve Martin, <laughs> with Nicole Kidman. It wouldn't have been Nicole Kidman with Steve Martin. Um, you don't when, know he, that? when he made the transition to drama, he wanted um, it, like uh, actors who were in a couple who were like actually married so that they could be super intense, um, which is why they was looking at Alec Baldwin, because I believe he was married to Kate Bissinger at the time or some. I don't know her name. He was married to a famous woman as well, and he was looking at them as a, a star couple, too. And what he did with Tom and Nicole is actually like early on before they shot a bunch of stuff. He had uh, a, like a psychoanalyst come in and had a really intense like four hour session where it was Tom, Nicole, Stanley Kubrick and this psychoanalyst. Did, um, they, did they have a, there's, I, mm -mm, I was really trying to figure out radio censorship, but that, mm -mm, I don't like the underlying sexual tension. <laughs> big sexual tension. I don't like and, that. And they have, uh, Tom and Nicole Kidman have both vowed to never say what happened in that room. Yeah, they all hooked up. We know, Tom. It's fine. I, you know. Hey, I'm not. in the bottom half of the episode, so I don't get to talk to Tom. I want 10 seconds to Tom. Hey, Tom, it's okay that you hooked up with Stanley Kubrick. It's okay, my <laughs> dude. He's dead. You can admit it. It's fine. We get it. It's fine. You know. I, 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 that thought hadn't even crossed my mind. What do you mean hadn't even crossed your mind? If they took a vow of silence, Tom Cruise, honestly, probably just kissed Stanley Kubrick on the mouth. That's probably it. That's probably as innocent as, as it was. You know, he's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, we'll I'll never give you, know. I'll give you one more fun fact before I do my data <laughs> breakdown. Just one more. One more fun fact. Martin Scorsese released a list of his top 10 favorite films of the 90s. This was number four. <sighs> yep. It was, it, like, he did it with Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert did not include this movie in his top 10. Yeah, of um, course not. True, true. E, of course, Roger Ebert's top 10 includes Malcolm X, JFK, Leaving Las Vegas, Schindler's List. Fargo, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, and Hoop Dreams is his number telling, one. Okay, hold on. Going back to Martin Scorsese's list, are you telling me that either Schindler's list wasn't on it or it was below 
eyes weren't shut. Schindler's List was not on Martin Scorsese's top 10 movies of the 90s. God, that sucks. <laughs> okay, we'll do a quick data breakdown and then we'll wrap up for the day. Uh, as as you know, I rank these on enjoyment, engagement, quality, iconography, and the Tom Cruise factor. Each of those out of twenty in order to get a meta score out of a hundred. This one, I actually, I'm not gonna lie, I enjoyed it. A fourteen out of twenty. Um, I was relatively engaged. I think quality wise, it's probably his top quality film that Tom Cruise has ever made. Iconography, I gave it a ten. I don't think it's iconic enough. Tom Cruise factor, he doesn't run. He doesn't you know, do any stunts, but he wears a mask and he's a little bit sexy. So I would argue, now hold on. Let me actually really quickly, at no point in this film, did he hook up with anybody? Technically, no. Then I'm going to put that on a zero. That's a zero for me on the Tom Cruise factor. If he he doesn't run and there's no action and the only thing he's doing is wearing a mask, I'll maybe give it a two. You know, that's that's reasonable, but I think if you compare it to movies that are even less Tom Cruise-y, mm-hmm. just because of the quantity of Tom Cruise and the quality of Tom Cruise, and he is really intense. His intensity really drives this movie. Mm-hmm. I gave it a 70 out of 100. It's a solid C. That feels very high, but I'm going to trust you because you have watched all of Tom Cruise. Yeah, I think there's a lot that are worse than it. There's a lot that are a lot worse than this. And we're we're just getting into it. It's a big, it's a big undertaking, the rest of this series, because it's only going downhill from here. I'm pretty sure we've already passed his best movies. Um, oh. <laughs> it's it's all down from here until we get to the late Mission Impossibles, which are all pretty good. But you know, we've got some time. We've got plenty of episodes and that's all the time that we have for today actually so tune in next week to hear me talk about magnolia and as always stay gold pony boy